Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Your long wait is over. I had decided to do it, then I changed my mind and backed out, but now I'm going ahead with it again. An episode about the 1992 presidential campaign of Ross Perot. I know what you might be thinking. Who is this person? And why is he here? Well, Maine was the state Perot did best in in the 1992 election. Looking back on his history-making campaign, the best for a third-party candidate in the last century is as good a way as any to assess American politics at the end of the Cold War and to reflect on how Maine and the nation have changed since then. We'll also talk about why Perot's message had such an appeal in the Pine Tree State and what that can tell us about politics in Maine. Best of all, this story requires us to get reacquainted with the one-of-a-kind Texas billionaire. Or, as he put it, that's the beauty part. So let's do this. guest today is Amy Freed, professor of political science at the University of Maine. Freed's most recent book, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump, was published last year with the Columbia University Press and is co-authored with Douglas Harris. Amy, welcome to Mainly History. It's really great to be here, Ian. I was so looking forward to this chat on the incomparable Ross Perot. And our hook for this episode is that 30 years ago, in 1992, Ross Perot launched the most successful third party bid for president since Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. And Maine was his best state. Let's start with the basics. Who was Ross Perot? Ross Perot, when he ran, really ran on his history as a successful businessman. So in a sense, he fit with a pattern that we see sometimes as sort of like a businessman, outsider, big personality kind of guy. And even though he had more of a background as a Republican, he was very critical towards the sitting incumbent president, the first President Bush. So, you know, he came in and really his major issues such as they were, were trade deals such as NAFTA, which he, which was a trade deal being proposed with Mexico and Canada, uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And then he tied the loss of manufacturing jobs in the United States with a kind of critique of the political system saying that it was corrupt. It was a not on the side of regular working folks. So he really had this very populist, outsider, independent kind of persona. And he was just extremely colorful in talking about all of these things. I think calling Ross Perot colorful is like calling the sun hot or something like that. (laughs) I mean, Ross Perot has to stand out as one of the great idiosyncratic 
political characters of the last half century. And there are certain aspects of Perot that we can see now can be compared uh, to Donald Trump or to, I'm trying to think, maybe Jim Trafficant of Ohio or, or maybe even Huey Long uh, in Louisiana or something like that. But there's there's just, it doesn't seem like there's anybody quite like Ross. He's, he's his own thing. Um, you sort of have to hear him and see him to experience it firsthand, uh, as, as we were talking about before this show. And I think that your point is an astute one about him bringing this business perspective. And one thing that I think might surprise younger modern audiences today is that he was also framed as this sort of technological computer whiz because he sold computers. And he's arguably our first major political figure from the tech sector. That's a really interesting point, Ian, actually. Yeah. And, you know, and the way he would talk about government and politics was as something that just certainly it just could be repaired. Like he would say, I'm going to get under the hood and fix it. You know, like whatever the problem was, he'd just go and look at it as if he was just, you know, fiddling with uh, some piece of machinery. Yes. And he was going to fix it like a businessman would. So he's just going to everybody else has. He kept when people would say he doesn't have experience, he would say, that's right. I don't have experience running up trillions of dollars in debt. I don't have experience in gridlock. I don't have experience in failure. When I run my company, we just do things and we get it done, which is something that you hear from various other tech figures and private sector figures who, you know, who, who opine on politics in the 21st century. That's absolutely true. And, you know, I have to point out as a political scientist that running things as a businessman, as an executive is very different from being a chief executive in any governmental setting, because you can't just tell people what to do. You know, we have all these different institutions and pre-existing laws and rules and processes and checks and balances. And a lot of times people from the business world coming into politics find it, find it kind of frustrating, actually. Yes. And this, this reminds me of something somebody once wrote about Donald Trump, but I think it might apply a bit to Ross Perot as well, where they said the way Donald Trump talked about politics made a lot of sense to people who don't have a really clear idea about how the American political system works because Donald Trump did not have a super clear idea about how the American political system works. And so therefore, when he talked about how it worked and what he was going to do, it made a lot of sense to people who thought like him, which is a lot of people. And this isn't necessarily to denigrate anybody's intelligence. Most people don't study politics for a living. Right. And a lot of people who are frustrated with the way the political system works tend to think that people are just, you know, kind of just fooling around and they people who are elected officials and they could just get things done if they wanted to. And they're overlooking the range of, you know, opinions that there are and think that things can be easily solved. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't too much polarization now and such, you know, obviously people could work together more than they do now. Sure. But at the same time, it's it's not as simple as a lot of people make it seem, you know, I mean, there really are, can be in some cases, very big differences in, in views that are hard to bridge. And, you know, we do have a, a system that makes it hard to accomplish things, which is, you know, built into really the constitution. Yes, absolutely. Last 
point on this uh, on this you know early '90s moment of frustration and this idea of uh, that that people are fooling around, I think it's no accident that in 1993 the movie Dave came out. And Dave is a movie where an ordinary guy played by Kevin Klein, who looks like the president, by some accident, he ends up becoming the president because he's like serving as a body double and the president dies. And the whole point of the movie is that Dave, this ordinary guy with common sense, solves all these problems by just coming at them from a naive everyman perspective. And so he brings his accountant friend to the White House and they balance the budget. And they're doing all these things by, you know, cutting through gridlock and not being corrupt. And they they make all these positive changes. And you could argue that the movie Dave was in some ways an, ex- an extremely counterproductive movie to, to enter into the political consciousness in the sense that if only one ordinary guy who's not corrupt could just be put in charge of the country, all the problems are actually really simple. But it, it had a lot of appeal in the early 90s, and I'm sure it still does today. And so in a sense, I mean, you're a historian of, of people's frustration in part with, with the way government works. And Ross Perot is kind of, in a certain way, he's the presidential candidate for people who think that the movie Dave makes sense, right? That, yeah, that if you bring in this new person with just some fresh ideas, that most of the reason that things aren't working is because the, the, the players themselves are corrupt or they don't want them to. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, uh, you know, this, uh, this sort of like tendency to think there's some magic wand out there that somebody could wave and change things pretty easily, but they just refuse to pick it up, probably because they're corrupted. And there may be some appeal to that, but that's not really, that's not a good way of really understanding the political system. Let me comment also something on you said early on that Perot was, you know, very, very successful third party or independent candidate. In a certain way, he was because he did so well when it came to uh, getting votes, getting 19 percent of the vote in 1992 is really you know, quite a lot of votes for a third party candidate. But one way in which he underperformed is that he didn't win any electoral votes despite getting you know, nearly one in five votes nationwide. And that's because he really didn't have a very strong regional base like a couple of other independent candidates in the half century before him. So like George Wallace in 1968 ended up winning five states, 46 electoral votes, got fewer votes than Perot, 13.5%, and doing even better in a way overperforming was Strom Thurmond in 48, who got a little less than two and a half percent of the vote nationwide, but he won four states and 39 electoral votes. So Perot had, in a way, I guess this goes with saying he did have, he was successful in that he had broad appeal. You know, it was more broad. It wasn't regionally based. And he got almost one in five (laughs) votes, but it still wasn't enough for him to win electoral votes. So our system, the way our system worked, it kind of limited his his impact. That's a very good point. And we should give Perot some credit that those last two candidates you mentioned were segregationists who appealed very specifically to especially pro-segregationist whites in the South. Uh, in Absolutely. Case, for some of our listeners who might not have known as much about them. 
Uh, and so at least Perot wasn't doing that. But your point, it's a it's a good one that he wasn't he wasn't really appealing to a, a, a regional interest group or a, a specific locale, even though, as we'll get into, he did do best west of the Mississippi and in Maine. So before we get to the election of, of 92, if we could talk a bit about the political background leading up to 1992. So clearly there must have been something going on if about one in five Americans were willing to cast a vote for an independent candidate. Clearly something was up. And so during the 1980s, this is generally thought of as an era of Republican political dominance. We have Reagan winning two terms, the second time in 1984 by a landslide, and then George Bush Sr. winning the presidential election in 1988, also by over 400 electoral votes. Why during this era of Republican dominance, how do we get to 1992, where George Bush Sr., the incumbent, does worse than any sitting president since President Taft in 1912. What what changes? Well, George H.W. Bush never really had the same kind of really broad popular appeal, even though he, you know, as you mentioned, he did well in 1980, his 1988 run, although he started out in some of the early polls not doing so well, but launched a very strong campaign, including very intense attacks against his Democratic opponent, Michael Dukakis, painting him soft on crime, kind of using cultural issues, some would argue kind of really racialized in doing so, going after Dukakis for having signed a bill in Massachusetts when Dukakis was governor saying that uh, about flag salutes. So, you know, Bush would went to a flag factory and uh, talked about how he he loved the flag so much, you know, <laughs> um, and really drew from these kinds of cultural elements, you know. So he really went after Dukakis, who was actually kind of more of a, even though he's from Massachusetts, more of a kind of pragmatic, problem-solving kind of guy. And he won, but he didn't really, I don't think there was a great deal of affection for him. And the those in the Republican Party who supported Reagan uh, just they, they were a bit wary of Bush. They thought of, of him as, these are the words they use as kind of a squish, you know, not uh, strongly conservative enough. And he was doing okay approval wise, but then did very well during the, when he um, went after Saddam Hussein, who had gone into another country and got this big, broad coalition to oust him. Oh, yes. Um, the and, first Iraq war. Yeah. Which, you know, was criticized some afterwards. Maybe he should have stayed and really gotten rid of Saddam Hussein. But then again, he didn't because he didn't want to occupy the country, which, you know, arguably was a yeah. problem when it did happen under his his son's administration. I, as a point of trivia, since we're talking about popularity, I believe both Bushes hold the record for being the two most popular sitting presidents at certain points in their first term. And then I think maybe having the biggest gap between their highest peak of popularity and lowest. Because I That's believe very likely, and they're yeah. both from these rally effects that have to do with national security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Although uh, with George, his son George W. Bush, his numbers really went af- up after 
the 9-11 attacks was the real real height when he came out yeah. and he looked very tough and he looked very strong. They were both at like 85% at least at one point, which is just astronomical, especially from today's perspective, it's astronomical. You know, 85% right. of Americans can't agree what day of the week it is, let alone whether they like the president. Yeah. And it was, and his numbers were so strong. The first Bush that, you know, really a lot of big time big name Democrats thought, oh, this is not the year to run for president. I'm going to sit this one out. And Bill Clinton decided to run as, you know, a young governor of Arkansas and ended up being able to win that race. But what happened, what really led Bush's numbers to go down was that there was a recession and a lot of people saw him as not being really that cognizant of it or really relating to people about it. Plus, he got attacked from the right by Pat Buchanan, who was a real culture warrior from the right and who brought up some of the same kinds of criticisms that later Perot did on trade deals. Right. And we should point out George H.W. Bush was the last Republican president to ever authorize a tax increase. Um, right. and he, he famously had that pledge in 1988 where he said, read my lips, no new taxes. I will always say no, no. And again, no, I will say no. And then he went ahead and raised taxes because he thought it was the right thing to do as part of a, a larger deal. Since that deal, which then some Republicans argued sank his candidacy in 92, since that deal, no Republican president has ever, has ever agreed to any any tax increase that was supported by a majority of the Republican caucus. Yeah, that's true. Although, interestingly, when Trump first ran in uh, 2016, he said he wanted to raise taxes on yeah. the wealthy and on, you know, like investment bankers and such, you know, very, various kinds of traders, which, of course, he didn't do once he was in office. Right. He, he opposed that. But um, Trump actually took a very populist take when he was running against Hillary Clinton. Yes. Turning to 1992. So as you said, there's a recession that hurts President Bush's approval. And we should add, there was also, this will sound familiar, there were street protests and in fact, urban unrest in LA regarding police brutality, the Rodney King rising of 1992. And so there were, you know, a bunch of these, you know, negative headlines and cause for unhappiness among large numbers of voters. So into the breach steps in his own way, Ross Perot. Even the process by which Ross Perot gets into the presidential race is typically, it's a typically Perot performance and that it is, it is colorful. How does Ross Perot get into the presidential race? And it begins in February of 1992. Well, as I recall, he is on the Larry King show, which was a show on CNN. I think it was five times a week. Larry King, who died relatively recently, uh, did the show for many years, you know, had a long history of these kinds of interviews. He had all kinds of people on, you know, he'd have political figures, he'd have entertainment, you know, just all sorts of folks. And uh, he, he said something to Perot. And Perot said that he would run for president if people would get him on the ballot in all 50 states. So it was kind of a made for television moment mm -hmm. where he decided 
to run uh, uh, as a result of it, or maybe he had decided before, but he announced that he would be willing to run if he could get on the ballot in all 50 states. And he did. That's yes. the crazy thing. He <laughs> did. Um, yeah. And I don't really know, you know, to tell you the truth, how that happened, because it takes a lot of work to get people on the ballot in all 50 states, you know, and usually you have to involve election lawyers and, you know, because there are a lot of different rules. Each state does it a little differently, especially for independence. Um, so I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but he, you know, it, it, it certainly felt like a grassroots kind of activity like a grassroots movement when he when he got on the ballot yes his prior experience he had no experience in politics his major political activities before this had been in the late 70s and then into the 80s he'd been involved in trying to rescue hostages in iran during the embassy crisis uh, as well as certain other points in time uh, it was very uh, you and I were talking about this. There are real echoes of Oliver North and Ross Perot's career early on, where he, he actually violated the Logan Act in some of his foreign dealings, uh, just deciding that nobody else was was doing what needed to be done. So he, Ross Perot, would take charge. And then he convinces these people to, yes, to draft him. There's a draft Ross Perot movement, and he gets on the ballot in all 50 states. Right. So, you know, and he also managed to, because of his standing, get into the presidential debates. And I think that's something that really mattered because there he is standing on the stage with the sitting president of the United States and, you know, his Democratic opponent. And he's able to, you know, really go go after them in various ways. Although at one point, you know, another sort of oddity about Perot is that at one point in the whole campaign before the debate, he drops out. This was right after the Democratic convention. He dropped out of the race and endorsed Bill Clinton. He said, it looks to me like the Democrats have their act together. I'm going to drop out. <laughs> but then he gets back in again. So when he gets back in again, of course, then he's able to participate in the debate. I'm glad you brought that up because that is part of what makes this entire story so so great. Yeah, that, that he's in and then he's out. Can we talk a bit about Perot did not have a published platform in the way that the Democratic and Republican parties did in 1992. And that was one of the criticisms against him is that he he was a bit vague on his stances on some of the issues. He was a candidate of several big issues. And then he would say, and I'm going to be smart and bring a lot of solutions to other problems. What were Perot's big signature issues that he ran on? Well, I would say his main issue had to do with these trade deals and the loss of manufacturing jobs. And he talked about a giant sucking sound. That's, yeah. the, that's the phrase that he used, which were pulling jobs away from the United States to poorer countries with lower wages. So, you know, although he was a businessman and, you know, obviously corporations, big businesses have been the ones who have wanted to change their manufacturing, you know, who moved their manufacturing out of the United States into poorer countries. His focus was on the, the trade deals that enabled that to you know, happen more or maybe even incentivize it to, to happen. I mean, that I think was really, when I think of Ross Perot, I think mostly about him talking about trade and talking about what he saw as, as corruption, plus also just the deficit. He didn't mm -hmm. like 
the growing national debt, you know, which is the result of deficit budgets. Talked about that hurting the country and leading us to be in debt to other countries. Yes. Other features of his campaign that I think that we just, that we need to talk about as part of the whole Perot experience. Uh, the reason that he claimed uh, that he withdrew from the campaign in July was he said that there were Republican operatives who were out to get him and were threatening to disrupt his daughter's wedding. Oh, yeah, and that... his daughter was getting married. And so he said, I am, but I love my daughter so much that I'm not going to let you do this to her. And nobody had any clue what he was talking about. And yeah. we would be remiss to, to, to not mention the fact that Perot definitely had a certain amount of whiff of kind of conspiracy theorist about him in certain of his dealings throughout his career, which again, puts him firmly in the, in the tradition of, of American populist politicians throughout the, the years. I would agree. And that was just really an odd moment. People really had no idea. And there was never any evidence of what he was talking about. And he's blaming some Bush cabal in trying to go (laughs) after his daughter's wedding. You know, it just 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 didn't it just didn't uh, seem in any way sensible. So, yeah. And there's and there's been this kind of like conspiracy theory, you know, dark forces are out there trying to hurt the great leaders sort of sort of view of things that that pops up in American politics. I mean, I would say you see that with Trump is musings about the deep state and such. Yeah. But the the Perot flavor doesn't end there. He people pointed out his various eccentricities, and he kind of leaned into it. His campaign song was the song Crazy by Patsy Cline. And so he would give his speeches, and then he would walk off and, crazy. Like, it's just unlike almost anything that people had seen. And now there's there's certain aspects of it. I think 21st century Americans, maybe we're just a little more jaded, and we've just seen more eccentric people, but he was, he was something else. Yeah. I remember seeing shots of him dancing with his wife to the song crazy and just (laughs) smiling, smiling, smiling. Yeah. He had all of these sayings where he'd say like, Oh, well that's the beauty part. Cause he's this, he is this East Texas businessman. And so he has this very, a combination of a drawl and a chirp that he would be, that he'd be using in these, uh, this is how he sounded when he was, when he was talking. And he even said in one of these debates where he says, you know, I have no preparation or training whatsoever, which will not be a surprise to anybody here. And of course, everybody laughs there. Then here's the other thing that that Perot did that was just very out of the box. And this is how I'm going to confess, audience, your nine-year-old host was a Ross Perot supporter because Ross Perot interrupted my regularly scheduled program with his infomercials. Ross Perot bought half hour blocks of time on primetime TV and sat at a table and flipped through a series of charts and just talked about things to the audience. And by today's standards, it's extremely lo-fi, low budget, but made a major impression on large numbers of viewers, apparently. And it was this typical combination of Ross Perot just sort of like, here's the problem and here's how I'm going to fix it. Everybody else is, is, is BSing you. And then throwing in various Ross Perot quips. 
And whatever you make of his eccentricities, I went back and I, I watched one of these infomercials. And I think what I found most unsettling is how many times Ross Perot would say something and you go, wow, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> this man, this man is making points. And so he, he had a chart showing uh, compensation for executives of companies in Europe and Asia and then in the United States compared to ordinary workers. And in the US, executives had way more pay. And so then he's got this pointer and he's pointing at it and he gets to the US and he says, now, what is this here? If you're making this kind of money, uh, that, that should be because you're a, a basketball star or a, a TV anchor or a rock star. And so mm -hmm. he says, well, well, well in, in Asia and in Europe, they know what they're doing. If you're a if you're an executive, you should not be making rock star salaries. And then a, a cue card flips, and it just says rock star pay, and then it moves on. And like <laughs> so, what's one thing that's interesting about that is that on the one hand, he's saying he oh it's a joke that I should know what I'm talking about. You know, would say that in the debate and have kind of this you know sort of painfully naive view of the American political system. But on the other hand, and talking about policies and talking about issues, he actually is, you know, in command of some facts, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, it's like kind of these, like what could have been situations? What, what if, he, you know, although maybe his appeal wouldn't have been as good if he didn't have that outsider persona, you know, like if he had, if he actually had known more about how to, how to accomplish things and, and seen a little more serious, it would have fit more with knowing about something about the problems. And, but on the other hand, who knows that might've decreased his appeal. Right. He did offer all kinds of various tweaks and, and solutions and uh, for technological innovation and cleaning up corruption and what have you. But one of the things everybody who worked on his campaign said is that he refused to change his approach or listen to constructive criticism for how to run a campaign and he just did whatever he wanted which gets back to if you're if you run your own company that's kind of how people run their own companies and that's that doesn't work for running a campaign and he also didn't have an answer and this is the big uh obstacle for all the third party candidates is great uh, the president doesn't pass laws so how are you going to get congress to do what you want and it's not like he was pulling a macron in france where he came up with an entirely new political party with legislative candidates, at least not in 1992. Right, right. You know, another thing that I think got a lot of attention at the time when he was running was the vice presidential cam candidate that he had during the vice presidential debate, Admiral Stockdale, yes. who was very, very well respected, you know, of the people who knew him. He had been a prisoner of war for a long time in Vietnam. But when he came out and did his little introduction to himself, his opening statement, he's like, I'm Admiral Stockdale. You know, who am I? Who am I? And why am I here? Said, yes. You know, and people were like, yeah, <laughs> good point. Who are you? Why are you here? Poor Stockdale. <laughs> they made yeah. it sound like he was just this confused fool who had wandered into the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, a more professional campaign would have prepared him or at least tried to prepare him. I'll note that in uh, the McCain campaign tried to prepare Sarah Palin and didn't do mm -hmm. a very good job of it, you know, at least initially because she resisted being prepared. But I it's not, it, you know, but in the case of the Perot camp, I don't think they really did try to prepare Stockdale. 
Right. I suppose in uh, the where the comparison between the, the McCain-Palin campaign and Perot breaks down is Palin had been a governor. And so she was assumed to have a certain base level familiarity with politics that an admiral might not, or for that matter, an executive. Sure. But she really didn't know much about like international politics, for example. Right. Correct. As we're analyzing how Perot did and who supported him, first of all, as far as we know, what kinds of voters were most drawn to Perot? He got one in about one in five voters. That's not nothing. So even if they were relatively evenly distributed, who were the people most likely to support Perot? Well, when it comes to just, you know, demographic kinds of characteristics, he tended to do better with men than with women. And he also tended to do better with lower income voters who tended also to be, you know, generally younger voters. And he did okay in some different areas of the country. Probably, I mean, the South is really where he did the worst, which is sort of interesting given his, his own background. But, you know, he kind of got some fairly broad support from different areas of the country, except for that. Although some states, obviously, he did better than others. He also did better, not surprisingly, with people who call themselves independents than with either Democrats or, or Republicans, where he got something about, you know, at least the exit polls say that he got about 30% of the vote among independents. But obviously, one of the reasons why we're talking today is Maine was his very best state. Yes. His top five states were Maine, Alaska, Utah, Idaho, and Kansas. And I think Alaska also has a tendency along with Maine to gravitate towards independence sometimes or be okay with independence. And uh, another sort of small state where, which sometimes also will do a certain amount of experimentation with its politics. I mean, they, you know, they'll, with ranked choice voting, for example. Talking about Maine in particular, Perot won three counties. He won uh, Piscataquis, Somerset, and Waldo County. Uh, they were not his best counties in, in the country. He actually, his best county was in Alaska, very close to where uh, Sarah Palin's from, actually. So small world there. But then also Loving County, Texas. Uh, he won 40% uh. of the vote in both of those counties, but Maine was his best state where he finished second place and over 30% of the vote. And he did win. He won three counties in Maine. So the, the counties he won were largely in the interior of Maine, the two, the two biggest ones, right? Uh, Piscataquis and Somerset, uh, and then Waldo on the, on the coast. And it was in the second district, so the northern part of the state, that, uh, sorry, the second congressional district, the northern part of the state, that Perot, he came within four and a half percentage points of winning that congressional district, and therefore an electoral vote under Maine's unique system. Why do you think he did best where he did in Maine? Well, in that period of time, particularly, those are states that are losing some of their manufacturing capacity. Hmm. You know, you had we there, there's been this big shift in the country generally to lose manufacturing to cheaper overseas labor. And, you know, it's still struggling with this in some places, but Maine has really been bleeding those kinds of industries and those kinds of jobs. And those were jobs that had good wages. They were union jobs. 
you know, you could really raise a family on them. And, you know, these rural areas are, are places where in Maine that have really been hurt. You know, also just point out with Maine in general that Perot did better in the, in the first district than, uh, you know, generally you might have expected to, even though he, he obviously did even better in the, in the second district. I'd also point out that in coming in second, in Maine overall, he's beating a candidate who had very strong Maine ties. Because even though George H.W. Bush was born in Connecticut and then moved to Texas, he had a very strong connection to the state of Maine with the family compound in Kennebunkport and really spent a lot of his summers in Maine, got a lot of coverage. So in some ways, he had a very strong connection to the state. And yet, he didn't do very well overall in the state, and he didn't do well in either district, but particularly, as you mentioned, in the second district. And the second district, years later, votes for Trump, votes right. for Trump both times. So, you know, even though the district lines have changed a bit over time, it's the less educated district of the two The population is less educated and has a very strong white working class flavor to it. And so both candidates, I think, had some special appeal to that district. Right. If we talk a bit about Maine's willingness to support independent non-major party candidates, that's also a place maybe where it stands out. In an episode from 2020, a colleague of yours, Jim Melcher, from University of Maine Farmington was was talking a bit about this, where Maine has a less of a strong attachment to to sort of par- organized political parties than than many other states in the country. Uh, so absolutely. could you absolutely could you give some examples of some other uh, other examples of independent candidates succeeding in in Maine politics from either before or after Ross Perot? Well, just two years after the 1992 election is a gubernatorial election that Angus King wins, and he wins it as an independent. In that case, also, the uh, Republican comes in third, uh, a lady named Susan Collins. You may have heard of her. (laughs) (laughs) And he, in second, is the Democrat. So, you know, Angus King has really carved out a a whole career for himself, you know, more left-leaning than Perot but still a a centrist and an independent. And so he was able to win the governorship. He he wins it with a fairly narrow plurality the first time, but then when he runs for re-election, he he wins an outright majority, which is very rare in Maine for governors to to do that, at least in the last half century or so. And then 20 years before King, there was an independent governor, Longley, who served one term. So Maine has a bit of a tendency to be okay with electing independents. And you have a very large percentage of the population that in Maine is called unenrolled, which everybody else, you know, in the country calls independents, that they're not signed up with a particular political party. Mm-hmm. And I believe Maine has, well, now, of course, the state has ranked choice voting, and that allows minor parties to to get to keep more of their genuine support. I believe Maine has, I think, the largest, most successful Green Party in the country in terms of electing legislators to the, the state legislature. Definitely the lower, I think also the, the Senate as well, and, and sort of minor political offices. 
as well as I'm pretty sure the libertarians do better in Maine than they do in, in many other states. Yeah, people in Maine definitely have tended to support more minor party candidates or independent candidates than a lot of other places. The ranked choice voting, I think, opens the door to that more in many circumstances, although it actually is not going to apply and does not apply to governor's races because of the way that the state constitution is written, Mm. which is its own sort of little quirk of things, because a lot of people talk about the impetus to the ranked choice voting campaign coming from the election of Paul LePage as governor in 2010. I mean, it had been talked about before as a possibility, but it probably did get some currency after the page was elected, uh, but it's not going to apply to governor's races. Hmm. Thinking about the aftermath of 1992 and Perot's legacy, he created, he formed the Reform Party in 1995 and ran for president again, although he got less than 10% of the vote, definitely better than any third party candidate since him, but not nearly approaching 1992. But why didn't the Reform Party have more of an impact on Maine politics compared to, say, there was a Reform Party governor of Minnesota in 1998, Jesse Ventura, the professional wrestler. The Reform Party has popped up other places. So do you have any thoughts on why the Reform Party did not really take off in Maine? Well, I don't think it really was a party in a lot of the ways we think of a political party as kind of an ongoing political organization. So it's really ended up being more tied to just kind of charismatic individuals who then could use the reform party lines to run. But there really wasn't the attention put into really building a political party and the fundraising that would go with that. And you know, sort of building some kind of longstanding organization. So, you know, I mean, really when Perot ran, he was running on the basis of himself. And I think that's really what Ventura did too, you know, he's uh, running as an outsider and here's a vehicle to get on the ballot, but it's not really a political party in any kind of standard term, you know. I think that that gets most shown in the election of 2000, the presidential election. Perot didn't run and the Reform Party, he stepped away. Donald Trump was briefly discussed as the standard bearer for the Reform Party in the year 2000, and he, he didn't do it. And eventually it was Pat Buchanan, the populist who was very family values, anti-interventionist, anti-war, but also very culturally conservative and anti-immigration on a bunch of issues. He ended up running on the party, the party line. And I think Perot had by this point, really, he didn't even endorse Buchanan in 2000. But we see there a kind of a thread between Perot and then the sort of different path of a, a third party candidate. Donald Trump was kind of this perennial third party candidate option who eventually decided that third party candidates can't win. So the best way to compete would be to take over one of the two political parties. But we see this kind of thread connecting these two unconventional businessmen without any political experience in politics. Yeah, absolutely. And it is really, really hard to build a new political party. I used to say sometimes that it was like, you know, like starting a new auto company or something. And, mm. you know, we, we can look back and say, oh, well, Elon Musk did it, right? He started Tesla. But 
it's very, very rare for someone to try it. And it's probably harder than that, really, because it, to really be functional, you have to operate in a, in a lot of states and to make some real difference. There, there are examples of political parties that, that emerge and, and, and stick around for a while. Or, you know, you can think of the Republican Party basically emerging and the Whigs disappearing. But that, that was a long time ago. Or as uh, someone who lived in Minnesota for a while in grad school, I got to know the Farmer Labor Party a bit, which was uh, a party that did elect people statewide and had large numbers of people in the state legislature. But after World War II, was folded into the Democratic Party, which is why even today, the Democratic Party in Minnesota isn't the Democratic Party. It's the DFL, the Democratic right. Party, the Labor Party. And Hubert Humphrey was very involved in, you know, ran for president in 68 and had been vice president under Johnson, senator from Minnesota, had been involved in those negotiations to bring those together in the uh, post-war period. And yeah. it's really, you know, my broader point is, it's like, it's very hard to really start a new political party. And I don't think, Perot was someone who wanted to put the energy into that. You know, he, mm -hmm. he had a great time running for president, especially in 92, and got a lot of attention. And, I, and you know, he cared about the issues, but he also had a huge amount of fun, I think. So it seems from the outside. But I don't think he wanted to really put the time into being a leader who's going to start something and, you know, be able to move it forward. Mm. Where do you see Perot fitting with your major scholarly interest? You have a, a new book out about the conservative movement and popular distrust of government. And Perot, although he was, Perot voters were relatively moderate, but Perot himself was historically more of a Republican and he appealed more to Republican inclined voters than the Democratic ones on, on certain issues in many cases. Do you see Perot and his campaign success fitting in with this mistrust of government with its origins in the, in the conservative movement, or is this a, a separate phenomenon? I think it is a part of what was going on in the politics of that time. And really the most insider candidate of 1992 was the sitting president. You know, you kind of have to be. Even Clinton ran as a bit of an outsider, although he was a former governor. He could talk about things that he had accomplished. But, you know, he, he was from outside of the Washington establishment. And in the, this book, Doug Harris and I argue that distrust towards government, skepticism for, towards government has a very, very long pedigree. You know, you can go back to things in the revolution or the early years of the republic and trace it all the way through. But what we argue is that it's been weaponized over time and, and it's become more, you know, really intensified and used in a more strategic way. And we talk about four elements or four aspects in, in, in which it's used strategically that can help deliver certain benefits. So it can help in elections, you know, may, running against government, making electoral appeals. It can help in organizations like political parties as a kind of central organizing principle to build and maintain political coalitions. It's used also in policy debates where you promote distrust in government, which really hit 
Bill Clinton when he was introducing a lot of the policies in his early years, particularly health reform, distrust in government was used that way. And it's used also in making institutional arguments to try to shift power away from institutions once political opponents control to ones uh, that, that you can control. And in Clinton's early presidency, also uh, leading up to the 94 Republican Revolution, Newt Gingrich, a Republican bomb thrower initially, uh, not really bombs, but metaphorically, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, rhetorically, and who later becomes Speaker of the House, really goes after Democrats saying that they're corrupt and Congress has too much power. And then after he becomes speaker, becomes a big proponent of congressional power. So you get that kind of switch in what institution deserves trust. So all of that is is sort of like a meaning all this sort of like feelings of something has gone wrong. What's going on with people in government? Maybe there's some underlying corruption. They're not on our side is used by Perot and possibly, you know, helps Bill Clinton win. There's discussion about that still, mm-hmm. uh, about how much Perot's campaign mattered and ultimately who won. But then it gets turned uh, certainly against Clinton, that feeling of, you know, outsider, anti, this anti-government attitude against Clinton's presidency. And it helps Republicans take Congress in, in 1994. And although Republicans had had control of the Senate, on and off over the years. It was the first time in 40 years that they won the House of Representatives. And since then, they've held it certainly uh, a part of the time. Right Right now, you know, Democrats control the House, but it's been more on and off. Yeah, that's a good point. What to you as a political scientist is Perot's most important effect on American politics. I think there's a certain legacy of Perot of showing that there is a path to someone who is an outsider, hasn't held political office to burst onto the scene with some help from the media and really rise very quickly. And there were certain points when he was number one in the polls. You know, he didn't maintain that in 1992, but he was the top person in the polls at certain points and do it with a certain flair, <laughs> certain energy. You know, yeah, he was kind of wild. But on the other hand, he did have those charts, you know, so you had like the sort of folksiness, outsider side of things. And, and I do think that there's still something about that, you know, businessman, I can get things done appeal that you see showing up lots of places. It shows up in tons of, of gubernatorial runs as well. You know, the businessman is going to come in and I'm just going to like figure out how to fix it. I'm going to get right under that hood and fix it. Uh, so, you know, he kind of opens the door in certain ways to, to that, because as we've talked about already, some of the previous third party candidates or independent candidates who did well were, you know, at least in the electoral college, did better in the electoral college, were very much focused on, you know, issues around race and not about economics so much. Mm-hmm. So this kind of like populist outsider, working class, I'm on your side kind of appeal. It is something that we saw with Perot and, and pops up over and over again. So our listeners 
know that they can and should find your book at war with government, how conservatives weaponized distrust from Goldwater to Trump. We will be posting that on our show's social media feeds. People should definitely pick that up as well as your other earlier works, Pathways to Polling, Crisis Cooperation, and the Making of Public Opinion Professions, as well as your first classic, Muffled Echoes, Oliver North, and the Politics of Public Opinion. So what has somebody else recently come out with that you think that our audience should be aware of? Well, you know, there's a couple of books that I really like that I read last year as I was finishing up my book that I'm going to mention, and then something that I'm just starting to read now. So the ones that I really liked last year, one is very much, you know, related to this, what we've been talking about, this kind of the populist moment, and particularly about, in this case, about the Tea Party, which is another populist moment hitting Barack Obama. It's a book by Rachel Blum, who's a political scientist called How the Tea Party Captured the GOP. And she did a lot of interviews with people in the Tea Party, which makes it especially interesting. You know, she's a lot of times interviews are done more by like journalists, but which are great. It's really important stuff that they do. But to have a political scientist do it and and talk about the impact of the Tea Party on the Republican Party, I think is is really interesting. It's another sort of like populist moment within the party system which is a bit of of a challenge. I mean, on the one hand, the distrust in government that Doug Harris and I talk about is something that the party's doing, but sometimes it also threatens the party because it rouses these elements that then turn against the party elites. And the Tea Party sometimes does that with, you know, with certain Republican leaders. So that was a book that I really liked when I was finishing up this book, this At War with Government book, and then in a more positive way, a a book that's called Politics is for Power, again, by a political scientist named Etan, but his name is Etan Hirsch, where he says that people have to move beyond outrage politics. This is my more positive take on things, I guess. You want to read something that will make you feel a little better about politics and our polarized moment, you know, with all of our difficulties, you know, that when people can move beyond sort of this, like, let's just tweet or watch the media that comports with our views. And, you know, he talks about that as being political hobbyism and, you know, this kind of outrage politics and really how to get involved in things that make a difference in people's lives and talk to people, really go out as part of political groups and have conversations with other people to move them along. I really like that book. Uh, That sounds interesting. And that definitely, I think there's been a few other books along those lines and pointing out that, you know, that people's overwhelming attention on national politics, and it's not that national politics doesn't matter, but that nobody knows who their state representative is, or, and nobody pays attention to local politics. And clearly party labels matter when you're judging what somebody stands for in many cases, but that's not the only thing that matters and that it helps to know about what the issues are in your local community. And so many people don't anymore. And we've had a loss of local journalism. Yes. uh, Given the, you know, sort of the what's happened to media and the takeover Mm -hmm. of the, you know, so much fewer uh, reporters doing covering state politics and local politics and people in DC who are there on behalf of their states. There's, there's fewer of those. So that's, yeah. that's a, that's a problem. 
And he is, I, I will certainly acknowledge, he's, and he acknowledges certainly more on the left, but I think it, what he's saying really applies across the board of this kind of tendency for people to get moved towards, towards outrage. You know, and, you know, it's, it says doing doing it almost as a politics is almost like this little hobby mm-hmm. uh, that you do on your own rather than something you do collectively and with other people. Right. I'm also just starting to read. I'll just mention a third book briefly, a book called The Privatization of Everything, which is, uh, you know, I'm interested in because of my interest in distrust in government, how what's happened when it comes to certain operations of government is moving them away from being run from government to these kind of public private partnerships and what you what you lose from some of that in terms of democratic control by Donald Cohn and Alan McCallion, the privatization of everything. Great. Thanks so much for those. Sure. Amy Freed, it has been great speaking with you today about all things Perot and 1992. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully we will speak with you again soon. Sounds great, Ian. Take care. That's our show. As Perot would say, if you like it, we need deeds, not words. Subscribe to us on your favorite platform so you don't miss out on all this mainly content, including book and media recommendations from our guests. Coming soon, we'll be talking about the role of Catholics in shaping religious life on the colonial main frontier. As much as the Puritans running the colony would have liked to pretend, living so near Catholic French Canadians, Wabanaki converts, and Jesuit missionaries had a lasting influence on the militantly Protestant communities in Maine. That's next time on Mainly History.